Uh, lesson this morning is uh, entitled The Spirit of Adoption. I'm chosen for a scripture lesson, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. The Apostle Paul there writes, he says, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For they have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. In the uh, scripture reading that we took, you found the phrase in verse 15, the spirit of adoption. That spirit there is a capital S. It's a proper noun. It's a person. It's the third person of the Godhead. Not an inferior person, but an equal person of the Godhead. God in his entirety, in the person of the Holy Spirit. Only place this phrase is used in the scriptures as far as I can find. And so I found that curious and I found it unique and uh, the Lord led me here to begin to uh, study. I'm going to begin with some things that you already know, but I want to just refresh your memory so that we understand the context of the writing in our lesson. Um, the race of Adam, as we know it, as we all are members, has a common need. We're born from the same cloth. We're born in sin. Uh, the fallen race of Adam is broken and marred by sin, both inerrant uh, and voluntary by our choice. And we have a common need as a result, a need to be rescued from our brokenness, from our sin, and return to an unfettered, holy fellowship with our Creator. That is the, the, the God's end in all of this, is for us to regain that which was lost by our first parent's sin. What was lost in Romans chapter 5, it tells us what was lost by the first Adam's sin and contaminated the entirety of the creation, has been restored by the second Adam, and his absence of sin has made the fact, as he says many times, three times at least in that chapter, that where sin did abound, grace did much more abound. So regardless of the amount of sin that this world may accumulate, God has seen fit to send a sacrifice for all that sin. The very worst, the very most, and all points in between Christ is the answer. And for, in fact, the Bible tells us that Christ is the only answer. Acts chapter 4 tells us very plainly that there is no other means of salvation, no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, so he is the only means of redemption. He is the only hope for all of mankind. Uh, a sinner, a lost sinner, must pursue the Lord, as you know. Uh, and without the leadership of the Holy Spirit, we are absolutely hopeless. Uh, we are in desperate need of the Holy Spirit's help for the initiation of that exchange. When the Lord holds us accountable for our sins, convicts us of our sins for leadership, drawing of his Holy Spirit to a place of repentance where we cannot find on our own, and the exercise of faith which he must give us in order for us to find peace with him. Uh, so initiation, leadership, and then also the direction of the Holy Spirit to find peace with God. We are in entirely dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Without him, none of us would be saved. What I want to talk about this morning is that the Holy Spirit's work in our life as believers is just as important as when it was before we knew him. We are just as equally dependent upon his leadership and his provision and his initiation uh, in our lives after that, that we have been saved. Uh, the Holy Spirit is absolutely indispensable in the adoption of believers into his family. My question initially was, how many converts really know what they have when they get saved? I mean, when they really get saved and they go, well, I just know I feel better. That'll get you to heaven. But my question, is that a testimony? We call it a testimony meeting. People talk about standing up and being saved. That is a, a, an experience of conversion that's essential uh, to being a member of the Lord's church. But I thought about Jesus in John chapter 9 when he uh, gave uh, sight to the blind man. 
And they, the Pharisees are trying to convict him for uh, healing on the Sabbath. And they brought the parents, and the parents would respond and said, He's of age, ask him. And so they went and brought the blind man to him. And it says in verse 24, Then again called they the man that was blind, and said unto him, Give God the praise. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or no, I know not. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind now, I see. All that man knew was that he couldn't see one minute and the next moment he could. Isn't that how you felt when you first got saved? That's a wonderful, genuine description of our spiritual conversion from sin. But is that a testimony? The word testimony is defined as evidence in support of a fact or statement, proof. You ever prove someone to, you ever prove to someone that you've been saved before you answer? Can you convince someone that you're saved? Is there a distinction to be made between trying to convince someone that you've been saved and showing proof that you have been born again? In fact, Jesus said we are supposed to show the world proof, right? He said, if you're going to be my disciples, you're going to bear much fruit. That's the way they're going to know that you're my children, right? The Jews uh, had units of measure, and they would measure fruit this way. No fruit, little fruit, some fruit, much fruit. And so Jesus, in talking to the Jews, said, I expect you to bear a whole bunch of fruit. A whole bunch. And he says, if you bear fruit, as I expect you to, uh, you will be able to prove, he didn't use that word, but to prove by the fruits of the Spirit that you are my children. So a testimony, again, is an evidence in support of a fact or statement, proof. My contention to you, and I believe wholeheartedly in this, is our testimony is what happens in our life with the Lord's leadership and guidance of the Holy Spirit after that we've been saved. I typify it in my own life like this. When I got saved, I met Jesus. Since then, I've been growing to know him. And loving. My testimony begins where I got saved. It ends when I die. The story in there from my new birth to my death is the testimony of my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. It may be sweet, it may be sour, it may be short, it may be long. We all are going to have a different song, so to speak, that we'll sing before the Lord. But we have a testimony that is utilized for the Lord's honor and glory that we should reap fruit for Him. An example, Paul, you know, was, was saved in Acts chapter 9. And he, a couple of different times in the scriptures, uh, recounted that conversion experience. In Acts chapter 2 he did, and then in Acts 26, uh, between uh, King Agrippa, he told his conversion experience again. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he says a little bit about his testimony. He said, thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a day and night I've been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watching often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in coldness and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all churches. Now he wasn't complaining. That's just a big long list of the things that he had experienced in his testimony and ministry for the Lord Jesus Christ. It was proof. What he was doing there was defending his apostleship to some accusers. He said, if I'm not an apostle, how have I suffered all, all, all these things? I wouldn't have chosen those things. Uh, he suffered because of Christ. The last verse that we read in our scripture lesson said that if we suffer with him, then we'll also be glorified with him, right? Not going to talk about that this morning, but that's important. So again, conversion is the moment at which peace with God arrives through the blood and the propitiatory death of Christ. It's where our testimony starts. What happened at the exact moment? My question is, what happened at that exact moment when our respective testimony began? What happened when you got saved? You say, well... I felt horrible, and then I felt pretty good. Absolutely, I did too. But what happened? We only know conviction, contrition, godly sorrow, and conversion. That's the human experience of the salvation experience. But what happens on God's side? A whole bunch more. 
whole bunch more happened that moment that you got saved. God did a bunch of things. Seven things I'm going to tell you that he did at that moment. The first thing he did was he forgave you of your sins. That'd be good enough. He separated us as far from our sins as east is from west, the scripture says. He blotted out the handwriting ordinances against us. He forgave our transgressions. He cast our sins upon his back and he remembers them no more. He forgives and he forgets. Secondly, he justifies us. The moment you got saved, he justifies you. He didn't say you were innocent because you're a sinner. He didn't say you didn't do it. You did it. But Jesus paid the price for all men and he declared us just. Why he's able to declare us just is because he's given authority as judge. Having lived a righteous life and been the sacrifice for our sins and meeting the requirements of the law, God the Father has reserved judgment unto his son. So Jesus is able to declare us just at that moment. 1 Corinthians 5 and 21 says, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Basically, our sins were imputed upon Christ at Calvary. And when we get saved, Christ's righteousness is imputed unto us free of charge. Thirdly, reconciliation happened the moment that you were saved. He reconciled us to God. How are we reconciled to God? That means to be made in line again. Our sins made us perpendicular to the Lord. We were offensive to him. And when we uh, have the blood of Christ shed shed upon our soul and we're saved, he makes us in line with him again, where he can fellowship with us and commune with us. And make sure that you understand that God is immutable. He does not change. It's not a compromise or negotiation. We come to where God expects us to be. And the only way that we can get to where God expects us to be is for Christ to take our place. Fourthly, redemption. The word redemption means to be bought back. It comes actually from three different Greek words, which I will not butcher in trying to pronounce. But the first one means to acquire at the forum, meaning buying a a slave is what it actually referred to. The second word is to buy out of the forum, which means take him off of the, the, the sale block. And the third one means to lose by a price. And so the picture there is a redemption is to buy back is Jesus came and bought us from the bondage of sin and didn't just buy us temporarily, but bought us and took us off the market so we can never be sold again because he paid the price. We were slaves to sin. He bought us and he set us free. The fifth thing that Jesus, that the Lord does when he saves us is sanctification. He sanctifies our soul. He sets it aside for a holy purpose the moment we get saved instantaneously. External or outward sanctification happens in our flesh uh, thereafter. It won't end until we die or Jesus comes back, one of the two. But that's what the scripture says in, uh, I didn't write it down, but talks about uh, working out our own salvation with much fear and trembling. It's not talking about being saved. It's talking about working out or sanctifying yourselves to the Lord Jesus after that you have been saved. But that internal sanctification happens instantaneously the moment that you're saved. Sixthly, we get newness of life. He makes us a new creature. He told in John 3, he said, Nicodemus, you've got to be born again. He said, marvel not that I say unto thee, you must be born again. The old man must die, right? 2 Corinthians 5 and 17 says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. You became a new creature the moment that, that the Lord saved your soul. The last one, the seventh one that happened at that moment is adoption. Adoption is the process in which God places a, a forgiven sinner with new life into his family. Specifically, it is the placement of a newborn child into the place of an adult son with all the privileges of legal inheritance. This one's the best, I think. I don't know if it's better than any of them, but all these others talk about legal things. How God forgave us, how he reconciled us, how he redeemed us. Adoption is unique. I'm going to let the cat out of the bag right here so you can think about it. Adoption is about relationship. God wants to save us from hell. He wants to give us a promise of heaven, but he wants a relationship with us. He desires a relationship with us. He talked with our first parents, and I believe he enjoyed it. And even as he was casting our first parents out of 
garden because he's a just God and he has to deal with sin. Even as he cast them out in Genesis 3 and 15, he gave them a promise. I'm going to make this where we can be back together again. You know what the price of that was? Sending his only son to die our death, to pay our penalty. God's always wanted fellowship with his creation. Jesus made it possible for us to regain that. So the premise of adoption, it's grace, the unmerited favor of God. Why does God adopt us? Because he chose to. It's his choice to adopt us. We are orphans in sin. Grace is the means by which all rebirths occur. It is regeneration that gives us the nature of the new family. It's adoption that provides us the title child of the king. Salvation gives us that status of family. The Holy Spirit of adoption provides us the instincts to cry, Abba, Father. Here is how adoption works theologically. First, God desires to adopt us. I already said that, but that is the most magnificent thing I think that I realized in my heart when I was studying this was that God desires to adopt me. An old mangy mutt like me. I'm not a cute labradoodle. I'm one of those Chinese crest dogs. You ever seen one of those? And the Lord loved me enough to come and want to not just save my soul from sin and spend eternity with me, but to love me and have a relationship with me in this life. He desires to adopt all of us. Second Corinthians chapter six, wherefore come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you, and I will be your fa- I will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God has that desire. He's enabled to adopt us because of the work of Christ. Again, I love this verse. I'm going to read it again. Second Corinthians five and twenty one. For he that made for he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin. That he might be made the right, we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And thirdly, in Christ, once we've been saved, he makes us holy. He imputes unto us his righteousness. Which we don't earn it, we don't merit it, but the perfection of Christ is imputed to us, put into our account freely. Uh, because he loves us. When he saved us, it's imputed to us. So when we get saved, God saves us because of the righteousness of Christ. Not of ours. He wants repentance and grace, or repentance and faith. But what he puts in us to make us worthy of his presence is the righteousness of his son. Amen. So that's still what he sees when he looks down upon us. Sometimes we get the wrong idea. The Lord looked down. He just really blessed me today. Make no mistake. I want you to understand this. When the Lord looks down upon you and finds anything favorable about you, he's seeing his son. Amen. That's it. He doesn't glorify in flesh. He doesn't have respect of persons. He doesn't look at that guy and say, he's pretty good. He's pretty. He's better than the other one. He sees Jesus. When my heart swells and I feel the presence of the Lord, now I believe in works, don't misunderstand me, but I know that part of me that God sees that he enjoys Jesus. And that was put there passively to me by God. So in Christ we're made holy. Hebrews 10 and 10 says, By the which we will be sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. The Father may then, this is important, the Father may then love us perfectly As he loves Jesus. Okay? This is where adoption begins. The Father is able to love you and I as he loves Jesus. We'll go back to the text verse in just a moment. The reason why the Father can love him or love us like he loves him is because he sees Jesus in us. The Father and the Son have a a perfect relationship. uh, One built upon holiness, justness, righteousness. And at least two different times in the scripture, Jesus was translated and God, the father's voice was heard audibly from heaven. Right. I don't recall any other man or woman in the scriptures having this happen to them in life. An audible voice from heaven said similar things. 
This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear you him. Perfectly pleased. If the father wasn't perfectly pleased with the person and the work and the sacrifice of his son, he would not have accepted it and you and I would still be lost. So our salvation is evidence that Christ was and is the perfect salvation and mediator between a holy and righteous God and we as the fallen race of Adam. So he takes us when he saves us and places us in a place where he can commune with us, fellowship with, with us. And it, again, is wholly based upon Christ. That is not to say that the Lord is uninterested in our behavior, obedience, and works. But I want you to understand this. He is interested in how I behave. He is interested in the works that exemplify my faith. He is interested in those things. But it's separate from the love that he has for me. He loves me because of Christ. He loves me because of the relationship. He doesn't love me because of my behavior. My father, believe it or not, used to whop me, spank me every now and then. I don't have any idea why he would do that. <laughs> but evidently discipline was necessary. And he did that because he loved me. But as an adult, I look back now and I understand that he at no point didn't love me. He just wasn't pleased with my behavior. Have you ever felt that the Lord's displeasure, your behavior, your sin? You ever felt his displeasure? You know, the Bible says that he chastises us because we're his sons. He says those that he loves, he chastises. He says if he didn't chastise us, we'd be bastards, not sons. So that's proof that he loves us. At no time when you spank your child or however you punish your child, you don't unlove them. You don't love them less. You love them because of the relationship not their behavior. If you can separate those two in your mind, you're going to see how wonderful it is that God can love us despite our behavior, despite our sin. He loves us because of Christ. He loves us because of Christ. So if you've been saved, you have everything you need for the Lord to love you completely like he loves Jesus. Isn't it wonderful to know there's one person in your life that's going to love you to the very end without any type of wavering? I thought that was my wife. And she's a good woman, but it turns out it's Jesus. There's a fan that sticketh closer than a brother. I'm grateful for that. Okay, the purpose uh, of adoption, again, is relationship. The word father is only used four times in the Old Testament. It's a New Testament concept. Uh, The Jewish nation, of course, was very acutely aware of this. And so when he used some of these words in the New Testament to them, it meant something more than maybe it means to us. Three different words in the Greek that are used for sons uh, or children, a child. Uh, The first one is brephos. Uh, It means a newborn and is used to refer to largely baby Jesus. Um, We find that in Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 2, primarily about Jesus being a a child. Uh, And the word user in the Greek means a newborn. Another time that we find this word brephos is common when Paul commends Timothy about grandmother and his mother, Lois and Eunice. 2 Timothy 3 and 15 says, And that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. The word child there. Uh, is brephos. And so Paul is actually saying <coughs> to Timothy, you've known, you've been surrounded by the scriptures since you were a baby. Since you were a baby, you had the scriptures read to you. First Peter 2 and 2, likewise, it says, that newborn babe desire the sincere milk of the word that she may grow thereby. The second word is tekron. It refers to a child which is uh, growing, but still under parental care. <clears throat> so not a, an infant, not a baby, but uh, a, a youngster, a child. <clears throat> John chapter 1, verse 12 
It says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. And then part of our text reading, Romans 8, says the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. That's Tekron, the child growing. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with God. If so be, we suffer with him that we may also be glorified together. So we have the picture of a, a, a baby being a child. And then we have a picture of a child, a growing, maturing child, still needing direct care of their parent. The important one is the third one. It's huios. Huios signifies not an age or a space of life, but a relationship. The word huios signifies a relationship between offspring and parent. Not about the age any longer. It is about the relationship between the two parties. Romans 8 and 14 First verse that we read, just for as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. If you're led by the Son of God, if you're growing and maturing and growing and progressing your testimony with the Lord, your relationship with the Lord is going to change. (coughs) I'm sorry. I didn't say that very well. Uh, But as we age naturally, our relationships change, right? You're a baby. You're passive. You just get cared for. <clears throat> we hear uh, uh, babes in Christ, right? You start to learn. You get to do a little bit more on your own. You learn to tie your shoes. You learn to do this. You, uh, and that's a good thing. But our hope for children is that they become adults and that they learn to do for themselves and they provide for themselves and they move out of our house, right? That's the goal. So they just don't do that naturally. You have to teach them some things, right? But I'll tell you now, I'm at a, I'm at a weird point in my life. I have my father whom I have an adult relationship with, which I used to be a babe and I used to be a child, and now we're both men and our relationship has changed. I have boys that I have watched my wife literally give birth to that have been babies, that have been children, and now one of them is a man and the other one's soon to be. Uh, and I've struggled, to be honest with you, with both relationships morphing into how those relationships mature. And I'll tell you this, both of those relationships are better now than they've ever been. I enjoy an adult relationship with a mature man more than a child. And I love kids. I love babies, but I'd rather have a relationship. It's more of a blessing to me to deal with a man, right? I enjoy the relationship I have with my father. I enjoy the relationship I have with my son. That is what the spirit of adoption is, and I'll get to it very quickly. Spirit of adoption is the Lord says, when you're saved, you're a baby. I wanted you to grow. I want you to desire to serve milk of the word. I want you to begin to eat meat. I want you to grow and learn. But what I really want is for you to be a man, to be a mature child that I can fellowship and commune with. Now, I'm never going to surpass my father, my natural father, because he's my father. That relationship is firmly in place. I'm never going to surpass or pass the relationship I have with the Lord. But the quality and the depth of my relationship with the Lord should change as I grow. It takes work. Relationships take work. And we men really don't relate to one another sometimes. I'll I'll mention that in just a a little bit. It takes more work for us men, I guess. We're not talkers, right? We're doers. So it, it takes effort to have a relationship naturally. It takes effort to have a relationship spiritually with the Lord. I believe we need to teach, those of us that are pastors, we need to teach uh, our congregations, our young people, uh, how to be saved. Not that we can coach them into it, but we need to teach them the gospel. But if we preach the gospel and salvation and repent and perish every single service, we're going to have a congregation full of babies. And if we preach to them just the rudiments of Christ, just the basics as uh, the Hebrews were upbraided for us, we're going to have children Wouldn't you rather serve and be part of a church full of adults that know the Lord, love the Lord, and love each other? Yeah. 
I would too. That's how the Satan works sometimes. I, I believe the Satan works just to keep us immature. You're saved. I can't stop it. The Lord left the church in the world. He can't stop it. You came to church. The Lord can't stop it. What he can do is stunt your growth and keep you children. Amen. It's our responsibility to make sure our responsibilities, our church members grow. And that's a big, that's a big work. I'm not an expert. Okay, the power of adoption. Abba, Father. Um, it is pronounced Abba. It's Aramaic. Uh, our, our understanding of intimacy stems from the fact that Jesus used the word both in prayer in the garden, Mark chapter 4, and the Lord's Prayer, Matthew chapter 6. When he's in his lowest point in the garden, in agony, he's recorded of saying, Father, several times. John 17, he prayed for you and me, right? He prayed, Father. When his disciples asked him how to pray, I believe he took it seriously. How did he start? Our Father. He said, I want you to appreciate the relationship before you can ask wisely the things that are petitioning from your heart. I want that relationship with the Lord. Uh, I like the, the, the prayers that everyone prays. I believe the prayers are serious out of the heart. I don't judge prayers, but I tell you what, my heart kind of skips a beat when I hear someone just bow their head and their heart at the same time and I hear them talk like they know the guy. You know, this, our Heavenly Father, we, we, I want to hear someone talk to the guy like he knows him. Amen. You ever been in an instance where someone starts praying and you're like, looking around like, is he here? Because you're talking like he's right here. He feels like he's right here, right? You talk to people you're familiar with differently than you talk to people that you're acquaintances with, right? Amen. Yep. We don't need to be acquaintances with Jesus. We need to be best friends with him. So Abba. Abba, Father, means Daddy. That sounds irreverent, but it's not. It's made on purpose. It means Daddy God. He said he wants us to come to him as a child, right? For such is the kingdom of heaven. Come to him and be able to trust him enough to say Daddy. It sounds kind of childish to our culture, but to their culture, it was a sign of intimacy that he wanted them to say. Through the spirit of adoption, there's something inside of me that wants to go to Jesus, go to the Father through Jesus and say, Daddy. Daddy, I love you. You fathers get, ever get tired of hearing that? No. Daddy, I need you. You ever get tired of hearing that? No. Tell you what, when I was a young father, I heard the word daddy or dad. My head was on a, a pivot. I mean, it wasn't even my kids sometimes. You go to a soccer game, you, some kid, you daddy, and like 20 heads turn. <laughs> it's instinctive. Let me tell you, I believe the Lord's head, metaphorically, the Lord's head turns when I, from my heart, say, daddy. Amen. That's a relationship. Uh, as such, because he is our father, that makes Jesus, you may have heard, heard him referred to as our elder brother. Some of you have older brothers. Probably they were decent human beings at all. You looked up to them, right? Even though they beat you, even though they were mean to you, probably you wanted to be like, in some respect, your big brother, right? Imagine if you had a big brother that was perfect. That's who Jesus is. He's perfect. And not only is this big brother perfect, he's the only reason we're in the family. You know, so if you have a big brother, it's the only reason in the family. and He loves you enough to give his life for you. Wouldn't you want to be like that big brother? He's the best big brother the world's ever seen. I want to be as much like my big brother as I can possibly believe. That's the relationship. God's our father. We can trust him and call him daddy. Father, just like Abba, father, just like Jesus did. Because our scripture verse says that if we have been saved by the grace of God, that he has given us the spirit of adoption, whereby we may cry, about Father, just like Jesus does. And as such, because of the relationship, he's taken us as a, from a babe 
and put us as an adult and said, hey, you're equal in my eyes as my only begotten son. You are an heir of God. You are a joint heir with my son. Everything I have reserved for Jesus, and whom I'm well pleased, I reserve for you. This is a bad example, but it's the only one I could think of this morning. What if a newborn baby was adopted by Elon Musk or Bill Gates or Warren Buffett? And you got to hold that baby. What would you say? Boy, you don't even know what you got into. You're just laying there helpless and you're a billionaire. You know, when I got saved, I was a babe in Christ. I believe I was in the arms of Jesus and said, boy, you don't even know what you got. You just know you got peace and that's enough. But you know what, boy, as you grow, I want to tell you what you got. I'm a rich, rich king. I'm a prophet. I'm a priest. I'm all you're ever going to need in this life and eternity. I will love you. I'll provide for you, care for you, lead you, guide you, bring good things and good people into your life. As you grow up at some point, you find out, you know what? I'm adopted. I don't even belong here, really. But you know what? Here's the kicker. If you, and I don't mean to offend anybody, but if you're adopted naturally, that's a wonderful thing. And these things apply to you. But you'll never share blood. But I was adopted by a king, and he gave me his blood, too. I'm adopted. I'm a blood-born son of God. Adopted son of God. A little brother to Jesus Christ. He's made me equal. So if that little baby was adopted by Elon Musk, and Elon Musk went to one of his hundreds of banks and said, I want this kid's name put on everything I own equal to my natural parents or my natural children. That would be the equivalent. That child has no right to that. That child shares no blood. How fortunate, but how temporary. Eternally, I have been given, you have been given through the spirit of adoption, reservations in heaven with equal access to the honors and splendors and perfection and righteousness of heaven reserved for his only son. So that's why the elder brother concept matters. But why is Christ our elder brother important? One, because Hebrews 1 and 3 says the son is the expressed image of the father. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Right? He's the personification of the Godhead. Jesus was God in the flesh. Perfect. Those who have seen the Son have seen the Father. And then thirdly, the spirit of adoption conforms us to be more and more like the image of His Son. Adoption is a miraculous thing. I know some people in my life that have been adopted. You know what? After they grow and become adults, if you didn't know it, you wouldn't know it. Why? Because they dress like their adoptive family. They talk like their adoptive family. They lived with their adoptive family. They look like one of the gang, right? Basically, what the spirit of adoption is, they, he wants, the Holy Spirit wants us to bear as we grow a family resemblance to our big brother, Jesus. The whole, the whole spirit of adoption is about becoming more and more like Jesus, to fitting into the family. If you love the family and you're appreciative of the family and you want to be like that big brother, you want to be part of the family, right? You're not a rebel. You love what, the God, what God's done for you. You love the peace that he's given you. You love the life that he's blessed you with. Don't we want to be like Jesus? We say we do. We're Christians, right? Let me show you something about family resemblance. Uh, I need Danny and Nathan Chandler to stand up. Come on. I'm on the clock here. Let's get on up. There you go. Do you see a family resemblance there? I do too. Thank you, brothers. How about Jeff and John Elliott? Come on now. I'm on the clock, guys. Let's pop up here. Very good. Do you believe they're kin? I do too. Very good. Jerry and Jeremy Miller. 
Yep, they're related. <laughs> Ron and Luke Spurgeon. Bingo whammo. Uh huh. How about Tim and Aaron Binion? Oh, yeah. They are definitely related. How about, how about Steve Skinner? Now, there's a good looking man right there. We share blood, right? You all share, share blood. But you know, more than just blood, you shared an experience of life. You grew up at their house. The sons grew up at the house, right? Do some of these brothers dress alike still? Do their hair a little bit like, have the same mannerisms, maybe even walk the same? Sure they do. That's not a bad thing, right? But Jesus is our example. The spirit of adoption is about we've been blessed to be brought into this thing. Now we need have to show our affection by being discipled and growing in love and admiration and honoring of the Lord. And naturally we'll take upon the attributes of Christ. That's being Christian. You don't have to try to do it. It should be natural. The spirit of adoption is cries within us, Abba, Father, I want to be like him. Father, show me how to be more like you. It's about teaching people how to love God. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, right? Act like me. Look like me. Bear much fruit like me. That's that's what I want. You can't force it. You can't produce it. I have it somewhere, but the spirits of the fruit in Galatians chapter 5, the nine things. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance says against us there is no law, right? Those things will exude from you. You can't manufacture those things. You can't fake them. You can't get a Chinese knockoff to make it smell close to the same. There's nothing that you can do to manufacture the goodness of the Spirit of God in your life. It's either there or it's not. You ever been around someone that smells like Jesus? Weirdest thing. Last night, I was down in the foyer for a little while, and I came back, and Brother Bryce was on TV. He was taped, wasn't even live. He was a long ways from here. And I was listening to him talk and I was like, I smell Jesus on that man. Don't you? You get around people like brother, like brother Bryson, you can't fake that. I, don't, I can't tell you what it smells like. I just know it when I smell it. I know it when I feel it. There are people, not just preachers, that I enjoy very much because you can smell the Lord's spirit in their life. Amen. The Lord's in your life. You don't have to tell people about it. You don't have to wear a t-shirt and a crucifix necklace. Just be like Jesus. Live like Jesus and they'll pick up on it. The pragmatics of adoption. Uh, It's a genuine sense of family caused by the confirmation or conforming to the likeness of Christ. Uh, The Bible tells us not to be conformed to the image of this world, right? But to be transformed daily by the renewing of our minds. We are to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. Of Christ. Say, so how do I conform myself into someone that I've never seen with my eyes or heard with my ears? He lives in here, doesn't he? How do I do that? The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit of adoption, right? The Spirit of adoption. Verse 14 of our scripture lesson says, For as many as are led, uh, yeah, for as many as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. So, evidence says you're led by the Holy Spirit, led internally by the Holy Spirit. And externally by the word of God. The word of God and the leadership of the Holy Spirit are always in congruence. Amen. If someone says the Lord needs me to do that, the Lord needs me to do that. I think what does the word say? Amen. If the word says something different, I'm going with the word. Not what you say the Spirit's telling you to do. Amen. The word and the Spirit should always be in congruence. They are one and the same. Amen. Psalm 143 and 10 says, teach me to do thy will. Teach me to do thy will. Did you teach your kids to lie or did you teach them how to be honest? 
Did you teach them how to be respectful, how to be rascals? You got to teach people. The Lord wants to teach us how to be Christ-like. Teach me to do thy will, for thou art God, thy spirit is good. Lead me to the land of uprightness. Psalm 119.35 says, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. I looked up that word and it actually means to give a gentle shove. Knows me that way. And you know, I thought about this last week. <coughs> is it easier to nudge someone that's standing or someone that's walking? If they're standing, you nudge them, they're going to do this. If they're walking and you nudge them, they're likely to go a different direction, right? So if I'm asking the Lord, nudge me, make me go in the right direction. It'd be much better if I was already walking in his footsteps, right? Already moving, doing the things the word tells me to do. So when it gives me a nudge, sometimes we look for the Lord to lead us in great ways. You know, throwing out the police all the time. When the Lord says, do what I've told you to do. When it comes times for a nudge, I'll bump you and you'll end up where you need to be. And that's been my experience. Two, we gain intimate access to God. He said, uh, thank you, brother. I should have brought one. Just for we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Doesn't want us to be afraid. When you were a child, were you afraid of your father? I hope you were to some extent. I don't mean afraid, but I mean fearful. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? When you were first saved, you afraid of the Lord? I don't want to sin. I'll get in trouble. That's a good thing to have, but that's not mature motivation. I've heard pe- people say, I want to serve the Lord and he won't save my children. Number one, I don't believe that. Two, that's immature. People say, I got to do this tonight. The Lord's going to whip me all the way home. Maybe, but that's immature motivation. I don't fear my father anymore, but I behave better now than I did when I was a kid. Why? Because I love him. It's good to fear the Lord. It's the beginning of wisdom. The end of wisdom is love, right? Because love casts out fear. And I had that somewhere. It's 1 John chapter 4. Verse 18, I believe, it says perfect love or mature love cast out fear. I still fear the Lord. I still have reverence for the Lord. I hold him in awe. But our relationship is based upon love because I respect him. I love him. I want to be like him. I don't have to be coerced to behave a certain way. I want to. I fail, but I want to behave in a way that pleases him. That's a sign of maturity. When your children begin to do things because it's right, not because you told them, that's when they're growing up. When they do something without being asked and they do it not because you need them to, but because they love you. That's the joy of having parented a child, right? I believe that gives the Lord joy when we do things that we know we're supposed to do without him saying, hey, hey, the Lord doesn't tell me to go to church anymore. I don't wake up on Sundays with this horrible burden to go to church. And, you know, it is so natural to me. I want to go to church. He doesn't tell me to do the things I know I'm supposed to do. And it makes me more pliable in his service because I'm already doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. He doesn't have to tell me to do them. He can have me do other things and you as well. So we gain intimate access to God whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The absence of fear and the maturation of the relationship with love. The end result, verse 16, was that he gives us assurance. So the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. How do you know that you're a child of God? The Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit, right? I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I don't question my salvation anymore. I'm more concerned with my relationship with the Lord. I know people do that, and I'm not discounting that. Satan is the author of confusion. But I do know this, that the stronger your relationship is with the Lord, the less doubting fear and anxiety that you're going to have. And the more the Lord can use you. Be careful of nothing, right? Be careful 
in nothing. We ought not to fear that which uh, is in the world, but says, rather fear he that can destroy both body and soul in, in hell. God wants us to be fruitful. To be fruitful, we have to be fully adopted into his family. I got five minutes to do a conclusion. This is a record for me. Okay. Little boys, uh, I, have a, I have pictures of each of my boys, various stages of their infancy or young boyhood, uh, you know, trying on my shoes or putting a tie around their neck. You know, it's cute because they want to be like dad, right? They want to be like, like dad. And uh, that's, that's natural. They want to mimic their dad by doing the things that they do, dressing the way that they dress, etc. As they grow and mature, they continue to watch, but they mimic less. Uh, and they begin to forge their own style or their own habits. Uh, in adulthood, young, young men often desire to, to be their own man. Uh, but actually, sometimes they often take on more of their father's attributes and teachings, which have somewhat recently been found to be more wise than originally thought. Uh, after that little rebellious stage that some boys go through, they end up usually coming around if they're parented well, and they see the wisdom in their father's tutelage. Uh, with some age, a man becomes more comfortable with his own skin and is content to fill his part in the, the cycle of life. The spirit of adoption is wonderful to remind us that from time to time to whom we belong and that our greatest desire should be to become more and more like our elder brother who happens to also be our savior. Recently, uh, my family was eating out. We, in Bowling Green, we don't uh, get, get, get together m- much because of distance, some of us, and we were eating in Bowling Green, uh, and uh, we hadn't been together for a while because of COVID, and we'd missed Christmas, and, you know, it was Christmas in whatever month it was, and uh, sitting at a restaurant, and the the women and the children were chitter-chatter, you know, just, and so sitting by my my natural father, kind of disengaged, we Skinner men just kind of check out when stuff doesn't interest us, and so... (laughs) We, oh, we just do. And, and so, so we were sitting there beside each other just saying nothing. And uh, I kind of dozed out. I was thinking, doing, doing my thing, you know. And uh, my sister voice came to my attention. And she said, hey, look at the future. And she's across the table. She's pointing at my dad. And I happened to look. And we were dressed nearly identical. <laughs> we were sitting in the exact same pose with the same disinterested features on her face uh, and I quickly changed positions <laughs> and it was kind of spooky actually but I can't help it his blood is in me I've known him for 50 years he's going to rub off on me I've been following Jesus for 33 years now I hope to be as much like my big brother Amen. by the time I get out of this thing as I am like the old man in the back. I love him more than I love my dad. And I want to be like him. I'm not embarrassed. I'm a little embarrassed when I get compared to my dad. Not really, but I've never been embarrassed being compared to Jesus. Right? He's perfect. He's worth our love and attention. I appreciate very much your, uh, your attention this morning.